This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 14th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we learn why termite-inspired robots are better off without centralized control, and Science's Managing News Editor is here to talk about why some cells are better off with many, many copies of their genomes. David Grimm is out this week, but will return next week after the AAAS annual meeting. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Termites are capable of building large, complex structures without centralized guidance. Instead, each termite operates independently and uses cues left behind in the structure itself for direction. In a report in Science This Week, Justin Werfel and colleagues describe robots designed on similar principles, robots that are able to cooperatively but independently build structures much larger than themselves. I spoke with Justin about why decentralized builder robots might be a good idea and what kind of engineering challenges lay ahead in their deployment. We've created this system of multiple independent robots that builds things that we ask for. They do it more like the way that insects build than the way that robots or humans normally build. So rather than everything being carefully pre-planned, it's more like an ant colony where you've got a lot of agents going around, each doing their own thing. Together, they produce a useful result. So this is a complex system, meaning a system of many independent components whose collective low-level actions together give an interesting high-level result. And we've developed a system of that sort where you can ask for a particular high-level result and you get it. So in this paper, you actually focused on the qualities of termites. And what were you trying to capture for them in this, uh, from them in this building system? So to start with, we're trying to capture the complex system's nature of the termites. They're all independent, so they're not following orders from the queen telling each one specifically what to do. Mm-hmm. They have only local information. So they don't know what the others are doing or what the overall mound looks like. They build structures that are much larger than themselves. They climb over the structures while they're working on them, and they communicate mainly indirectly. So this is the term stigmergy. That means they coordinate through the environment rather than talking to each other directly. Like one puts some material down, another one comes along and responds to that material. So those are the things that we're doing with the robots. So what are some of the advantages of a decentralized system like that used by termites and and your robots? 
One advantage is that it can be more robust. So if some of the robots break, the rest don't need to change what they're doing. They can go ahead and finish the job themselves. If you had one central controller running everything and that broke, uh, you know, you're out of luck. The whole thing's a loss. Another advantage is that it can be more scalable. So if you have a bigger job, you can just add more robots to it to get it done faster. And again, the individual robots don't need to change what they're doing. And there's no bottleneck like there could be with a centralized controller that could hit a limit of how much it can deal with at one time. Um, So I watched some videos associated with your paper, and these robots are doing amazingly complex things. Can you describe what they can sense and what actions they can take? Sure. We try to keep things very simple, again, sort of on the termite model. Mm -hmm. So the robots have only three motors, and basically they can move forward or backward, they can turn in place, they can pick up and put down bricks. When they're on the structure, they can see these black and white cross patterns on the bricks they're standing on, and they use that to keep track of how far they're moving. There's a tilt sensor, so they can tell if they're climbing up or down. Off the structure, they walk around the perimeter using sonar to tell how far away from it they are. They have a couple of push-button sensors that let them tell whether they've successfully picked up or put down a brick, and the sonar also lets them tell whether there's another robot nearby, and that's pretty much it. So if you step back and you watch a whole sequence of things they do, it may look very complex, But the low-level things that the robots are doing are actually very simple and very limited. Right. So can you actually walk us through, say, a typical path for one of these robots when it's working on a building? Yeah. So if you're the human asking for something you want them to build, you give them basically a picture of what you want. That gets turned into a representation that basically corresponds to traffic rules for that particular structure. And then if you're a robot, you have those traffic rules plus one fixed set of building rules that's the same no matter what you want to build. And that goes like this. You walk around the structure until you find this one marked starting point. That's Mm -hmm. where you climb on. You pick up a brick. And then you start following those traffic rules. If you come to an intersection where there's more than one way you can go, you just pick one way. Meanwhile, there's this single set of rules that says, as you go, you look at what bricks are already there and what bricks are supposed to be there but aren't yet. And when certain conditions about bricks right around you are met, you go ahead and you attach the one you're holding. And those rules guarantee that construction will always be able to keep moving forward. You won't, so to speak, paint yourself into a corner. Okay. So one of the big differences between these robots and termites is that the machines can be reprogrammed. They can build different things depending on the rules they're given. But what about the process behind creating those rules? Do you start with a complex or high-level outcome and then design simple rules from that? That's a great question. In general, in studying complex systems, you're starting with low-level rules and trying to predict something about what the high-level result will be. Here, we're doing the opposite. We're looking for a specific high-level result, and we need to find low-level rules that will produce that result. So what we've done is we've developed one set of low-level rules that works for any structure they can build, and that goes together with this procedure for turning the target structure into traffic laws for that structure. So there's some of each. We've got the high-level outcome we want, We use that to help come up with these low-level rules. Then these robots follow the low-level rules, and together they produce that high-level result. So can you talk about some of the kinds of structures you can build with these devices? So there are two different kinds of restrictions on what they can build. One has to do with the materials they're using. So in the paper, we talk about them using these square bricks, Mm -hmm. which they pile on top of one another directly. So, So they can build things like pyramids. But with nothing but bricks, you can't build something like a large open room with a roof because you can't cantilever bricks out over that open space. Mm-hmm. So you need to extend the system in order to build things like roofs. The other restriction is that they have to be able to come up with traffic rules for whatever it is that you ask them for. Uh, and there are things that you can ask them for for which no such rules exist. 
So for instance, if you're talking about, like we are, something like bricks and mortar, where robots can only add material and they can never take it away, then you can't ask for a very tall tower with straight sides because there's no way for robots to climb that high. Mm-hmm. What you could do, potentially, is have them build uh, sort of scaffolding, have them build a temporary staircase that they use to build as high as they need to, and then later they take that staircase away. But you can't do that if they're doing this bricks-and-mortar thing where they can only add material. Okay. So in this work, the robots are being hand-fed building blocks, and the blocks are made from specially shaped, lightweight material. If this was going to be ruled out for real-world applications, what kinds of changes would need to be made? So there would need to be minor changes and major changes. The minor changes are things like, as you say, you'd need something like a hopper with a huge supply of blocks for robots to keep drawing from rather than needing to keep hand-feeding them one at a time. A bigger change is you would really need a a major industrial redesign process for the robots and, and bricks that would work outdoors for real structures. There's a lot of legacy issues in the current design. And as you say, neither the robots nor the bricks are made for really building useful things outdoors. Then there are really major issues, like if you really want a construction system like this to be completely autonomous, you need to build in the ability to deal with rare but major failures. Hmm. So even if you make the robots almost perfectly reliable, in a big enough system with enough robots, some of them will break and some will do things wrong. And the current lab robots can deal with little mistakes. But, you know, if a robot breaks down in the middle of a structure, gets in the way, you need to be able to call a tow truck. That's beyond the abilities of the current hardware, and that's the kind of thing that a real field system would need to incorporate. Okay. Why would we want to use robots to build buildings rather than people? What are some circumstances where that would make sense? So one case is in traditional construction projects. Right now, there's next to no automation in construction. There's a lot of heavy machinery, but it's all being used by highly trained human workers. And in other fields like manufacturing, that used to be the case, but now automation is ubiquitous. And it's helped with a lot of things like reliability, with things like labor shortages, things like reducing accident rates. And these are actually the kinds of things that are reported as the key problems in construction. Construction industry is the one where more people die per year than in any other industry. So if some degree of automation could be brought into construction, it could help with those kinds of problems. But then the other kind of setting where automating construction could be really helpful is in cases where we don't have a system in place already for humans to go in and build. So for instance, if we want to build underwater or in outer space, if we want to construct oil platforms or marine research stations or Mars bases, it's very dangerous or very expensive to try to send humans there Mm -hmm. uh, to do that kind of work. It could be much more effective to send a team of robots on ahead to do the construction by themselves. And if you want to send humans to follow up later, Mm -hmm. they've got the infrastructure laid for them when they arrive. Great. Justin Werfel, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Justin Werfel and colleagues write about termite-inspired robots in This Week's Science. Most mammalian cells are diploid, with two copies of each chromosome per cell. Occasionally, the complement of chromosomes is doubled, like right before cell division, so cellular offspring can have their copy of the genome to take away. But sometimes, just two copies is not enough. In a news-focused story this week, Mitch Leslie chases down the latest research into why some cell types might need hundreds or even thousands of copies of their genes. I spoke to Science's managing news editor, John Travis, about the story. 
So this week, Mitch Leslie has written about an unusual topic called polyploidy. And polyploidy is essentially having more chromosomes in your cell than you should, and not just a single chromosome, but a whole set of chromosomes. Most uh, mammalian cells are what we call diploid. They have two sets of chromosomes, one you inherit from your mom and one from your father. But a few cell types in our body have many more chromosome sets, uh, a dozen, a hundred, even a thousand. And this has been known for a long time, but scientists didn't know why this was so, and they've been speculating about it for years. And Mitch decided to look into this as one of the kind of ongoing mysteries of the cell. That's a topic we've covered in the past. And Mitch found that scientists are finally starting to test different theories of polyploidy because they've been able to manipulate the state. And that's only something they could do in the last few years. Right. So what are some of the theories going into this for why polyploidy happens in mammalian cells? One of the original ones or or more common ones uh, revolved around the liver, which has a lot of extra chromosome sets. And the liver is an unusual organ in that it can regenerate in mammals. And it's also an organ that works very hard to detoxify our body. And so people speculated that polyploidy either helped the regenerative ability of livers or ramped up protein synthesis so that the organ could eliminate toxins. So essentially, if you had multiple extra copies of a gene, you could make more of something. Mm -hmm. So that's been one theory. Another theory is that if you have extra chromosomes in a cell, the cell is going to be bigger. So essentially, it's a way of bulking up the cell. And sometimes physical size is an advantage. And so people have been looking at that as well. So in any discussion of polyploidy, cancer seems to make an appearance. What has been the historical relationship between genome copy number and cancer? And with this new research, is there any shift in our understanding of it? It's probably too early for a shift at the moment, but it's It's one of the reasons people are interested in polyploidy. It's considered in many ways a precursor to cancer. And our cells don't want to have extra DNA. They have all sorts of safeguards that when a cell divides, it only produces two copies of its genome usually. So to become polyploid, a cell has to get around those safeguards. And by disabling them, it might make itself more cancer prone. But again, that raises the question of why do cells do that? There must be some advantage to the polyploid state. And maybe the body is willing to risk cancer in order to get the advantages. But we don't know what the advantages are yet. Right. So we are starting to see some tests of the polyploid theories. What have we learned from experimentally manipulating genome count? So what's happened over the last few years is scientists have identified proteins that regulate polyploidy during cell division. And by either eliminating those proteins or adding extra amounts of them to cells, they can make a cell more polyploid. It'll have more chromosome sets, or it can uh, revert the cell back to a traditionally normal diploid state, only having two chromosomes. And they've done that in mice by genetically engineering them. And in the liver, for example, a group tested if you make liver cells diploid, 
and so they're no longer polyploid. They don't have these extra chromosome sets. Will the liver function normally? And it seems to. It has a normal regenerative ability. It seems to be able to eliminate toxins in your body. And so that throws a big question mark into one of the popular theories. Now, not everyone buys that. One of the groups Mitch talked to did find that changing the polyploid state might be involved with liver regeneration, but through a very odd mechanism called uh, aneuploidy. Right. This is when it's not, they don't want a whole second complement of the set of chromosomes. They just want one or two chromosomes to be double down on. Right. I mean, uh, the most famous aneuploid state is probably Down syndrome, where there's an extra 21st chromosome. But occasionally, cells will either gain or lose an individual chromosome. And again, like polyploidy, that's dangerous for a cell. Aneuploidy has been correlated with cancer for a long time. People aren't quite sure whether it triggers cancer or is a result of cancer. Mm -hmm. That's still an ongoing debate. But one of the teams that Mitch talked to has an idea that aneuploid cells are better at regenerating in the liver. And so they suggest that cells have to become polyploid in order to then become aneuploid. And so the liver goes through this roundabout process to create aneuploid cells, and those are the ones that help the liver grow again if it is surgically cut or diseased. Right. And they've also looked at this in other cell types besides the liver. What were some of the findings in those settings? So one of the cell types that has the most chromosome sets is the megakaryocyte, if I pronounced it right. It's an immune cell that's in the bone marrow, and probably we know it best for producing platelets, which are important to blood clotting. And one of the theories is that polyploidy is important to that, but they manipulated these cells to become diploid and platelet production stays normal. So that doesn't seem to be the explanation. But other people are now suggesting that these cells to stay in the bone marrow bulk up with their extra chromosome sets. And they have to escape through a pore into the bloodstream from the bone marrow. But because they're so big, it's difficult for them to do that. But maybe they can spit off platelets that then do it. So the question is, is polyploidy essentially a way to anchor cells into the bone marrow? And there's a few other cell types where people think size is what matters. And so none of those have to do with actually having more of a gene. It's really just a different way of physically changing the cell. That's the going theory or one of the going theories. That's really cool. So it seems that in one setting, they actually had a pretty clear result that polyploidy or changing polyploidy state had an effect on the cells. And that was in the heart. What happened there? So yeah, the heart teams with polyploidy cells. And when they made in mice again uh, a heart that was largely diploid, at first it seemed like the heart was normal. No obvious physical appearance changes. But when you place that heart under stress, it didn't do as well. The animal suffered, didn't recover from, I think it was a heart attack. And so you could argue that they have some evidence that polyploidy helps the organ survive stress, maybe makes it a more resilient organ, but they don't yet know how. So this is really a, a story without an end. It's an, it's an ongoing mystery, but at least they're now examining theories. Okay, well, let's try to give it an end. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there are still a lot of theories out there. Is anyone saying that controlling polyploidy might have a place as a disease therapy? Yeah, there's there's at least one group exploring that already, um, even to the point of a clinical trial. There's a type of leukemia that involves the megakaryocyte cells, and those cells are in an immature state in this cancer, and so they're not polyploidy. And in their normal state, polyploidy, they don't divide. But in this immature state, they can divide out of control. And so a group has identified compounds that can push these immature cells into a polyploidy state and hopefully prevent them from dividing. So this is uh, something that they'll start clinical trials on relatively soon if they haven't already. Wow. All right. Well, John Travis, thanks so much for talking with me. My pleasure. John Travis is the Managing News Editor for Science. You can find Mitch Leslie's story on progress in understanding polyploidy in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.